Scripture. As we continue our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Again, open your Bible with me as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. The passage will be on the screen behind me, as well as the monitors on the side. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Will you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. And Kano, if I could just kind of wave at him, um, everything's fine. Now, I'm walking across the street at a crosswalk, pushing a stroller, and a, a car turns right in front of me, and all of a sudden there is this feeling that I have never felt before, like, rise up inside of me. The closest thing I could describe it to is like, Hulk, smash! It's, uh, it's a change. It's when I have to submit to the Lord. Transitions bring changes. We automatically expect that will be the case, but what happens when it's not the case? What happens when you enter a brand new chapter of life, but continue to live like you never left the last one? What happens when you undergo a major transition, but live as though nothing was different? What happens? Most of the time, that's when problems happen, sometimes major ones. What happens when your body slows down with years, but you play a game of pickup football like you never left your teens? Problems. Or imagine the Bears were able to draft this phenomenal rising star as a quarterback. This guy lit it up. He was destined to go down in history to shake the Hall of Fame. The thing is, 
He was raised in Wisconsin. Green Bay, nonetheless. And he was a diehard Packers fan. What would happen if, even after he was drafted by the Bears, he kept wearing Packers hats and Packers jerseys everywhere he went? What would happen if, right before Chicago played Green Bay, he got on the air and said, Go Packers! There'd be problems. Someone would have to take him aside and say, That's not you anymore. You're not a Packer. You are a Chicago Bear. Your allegiances have changed and your actions need to follow. What happens when you enter a brand new chapter of life but continue to live like you never left the last one? What happens when an individual gets married and transitions from me to we but keeps living like a single person? They never consult their spouse on major financial decisions, although it will impact both of them. They pursue their own plans and their own dreams without giving thought to the other. They stay out till 2 a.m. without saying a word, like no big deal. They maintain a constant, a constant flirtatious air about them. What happens? Pain, wounds, and problems. Deep ones. And unfortunately, this actually does happen. And it boils down to maintaining a single-person mindset in a married person setting. It's when a person's actions don't line up with their new identity and you just want to take them and shout, that's not you anymore. Who you once were is no longer who you are now. There needs to be a clean break. So what does all this have to do with 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11? At first glance, it seems like this passage is all about the problem of legal disputes, Christians taking Christians to court. And indeed, that is the specific topic. But what we'll see is that Paul's main point is much greater than that. The specific case of their legal wrangling is simply a symptom of a deeper problem going on in the Corinthian church. The legal situation was bad in and of itself and needed to be addressed but it was the result, the byproduct, of an even bigger, more widespread problem in the church. And at the heart of it, the underlying problem in the church is similar to the quarterback who once was a Packer, and similar to the married person who once was single. It's about a grave mismatch between who the Corinthians truly are and what they were currently doing. It's about a grave mismatch between their new identity and their actions. It didn't line up. At the heart of it, you see, by the grace of God, the Corinthian believers had placed their faith in Christ and therefore undergone the greatest transition of all from darkness to light, from being of the world to being of God. But in many ways they were living as though nothing was different. God, the author of salvation, had brought them to a brand new chapter of life. But they were living like they never left the last one. And so in this passage, God, through Paul, is saying to them one main point. 
that's not you anymore. You are no longer of the world. Who you once were is not who you are now. There needs to be a clean break. And this is a message not only for the Corinthians, but one for every day and age. There are pressures around us from every angle to live just like the world. We need to hear again and again, that's not you anymore. You are no longer of the world. We need to hear it again and again because we're prone to forget it, aren't we? At least that's what it seems like with the Corinthians. In this passage, it's almost like the Corinthians had some sort of spiritual amnesia and had temporarily forgotten who they truly are and how that comes to bear on their lives. And so it's as if Paul jolts them back to reality with three strong reminders. Three reminders that speak to us as well. And they all center on Christ. Remember your destiny with Christ. Remember your witness of Christ. And remember your transformation in Christ. Well, if you're not already there, I'd like to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll begin with verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. The first reminder is found in verses 1 through 4. Please follow along as I read it aloud. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? In these verses, Paul strongly calls the believers back to reality, back to who they truly are as believers with this first reminder. Remember your destiny with Christ. Earlier, we learned that Paul had received a report of issues going on in the church. In the first four chapters of his letter to the Corinthians, he dealt with the first issue, division. Last week in chapter 5, he dealt with the second issue, unrepentant sexual sin that was threatening the life of the church. Here, he responds to the third issue. It was reported to Paul that one member of the congregation was in the process of taking another member to court, most likely involving property or money, material goods. In other words, one member was suing another, and to do so, the case was brought before judges outside the church in the infamous courthouse of Corinth, which was known as the Bema, and it was right out in the middle of the city and known for its moral shakiness. And you can just tell that Paul is like, what? He is exasperated by the whole thing. In these first verses, it's a, it's, it's a barrage of rhetorical questions, one after another. Boom, boom, boom. Five total in four verses. All with the sense of, shouldn't you have known better? 
It's like the current of the world was just carrying them along. So Paul wants them to stop and think things through. The aim of the questions is to help them see how completely upside down their thinking was with what God says to be true. And there are two things that Paul highlights here. Number one, it's upside down for God's people to have lawsuits against one another. Why? Why is that upside down? Paul explains in verse 2. Because the saints, God's people, will judge the world. Oh, okay. What What does that mean? The saints will judge the world. Paul doesn't go into the details here, but this is what we know from Scripture. First off, God's Word is clear that God is the ultimate and final judge of the world. So that is not what Paul is getting at. But several passages of Scripture all give us this incredible picture that believers, we as believers, will actually reign with Christ forever. Listen to this, Revelation 3, 21. Jesus says to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Can you imagine that? We will be seated with Jesus. When Jesus rights every wrong, when he establishes perfect justice everywhere, we will somehow share in that with him. His triumph will be our triumph. And that's all we need to know. Because if, that's, if that is the case, Paul argues in the second half of verse 2, then why do we make such a big deal out of small things in comparison? We need the wisdom, the divine perspective to see big things as big and small things as small. When we see the things of the world as small and all that we have in Christ as big, then we will be able to handle these matters before they get blown out of proportion. We will be able to handle them before they ever get to the point of a a full-blown lawsuit. Paul is not saying that Christians should never have disputes. He is saying that our disputes need not result in a lawsuit. We should simply take care of them and move on to what truly matters. The second thing that Paul highlights is related. Let's just say there is a lawsuit between believers. Even then, it is upside down to seek a verdict from those outside the family of God. It's upside down. Why? We have to remember that the whole judicial system outside the church in Corinth was corrupt. Normally, you wouldn't go there looking for justice. You would go there looking for a favor, looking to selfishly benefit. So in essence, Paul is saying it's upside down for believers to go to court for their own selfish interests. As those who will be with Christ, as he establishes his perfect justice in the future, we are to be seeking justice in the present. So if justice is what you truly want, stay away from those who will only serve your interests. Go instead to those who will serve God's interests. 
And so the question many people have at this point is this. Should a believer ever bring a lawsuit to the court system? We don't have time to go into all the details here, but there are a few brief insights we can draw from these verses. First, if there is a dispute between believers, we must do everything in our power to resolve it before it can go to court. God is the ultimate peacemaker, and as His children, we are called to bear the family resemblance and make peace at all costs. Think about how much it costs God to make peace with us. How much will it cost us to make peace with one another? How far are we willing to go? Second, if we have to go to court, for whatever reason, we must first check our hearts. Granted, our court system is in some ways different than the one in Corinth. But the overarching question remains the same. We must be willing to honestly ask ourselves, am I seeking my own selfish interests here? Or am I seeking justice? Honestly, is this about me? Is this about what I can get out of it? I do think it's biblical use the court system for justice especially for the sake of others for the sake of the oppressed and we see Paul throughout the book of Acts using the court system when it would serve to advance the kingdom of God but if we're there just for how it can benefit us we should stay away that's what Paul is saying don't even go there that's not who we are we are people of justice not of selfishness. And we can broaden the application here a little more. Regardless of whether we're currently tempted to have a lawsuit or not, everything Paul says in these verses is anchored on eternal realities. God, through Paul, is calling us to live in the present in light of the future, to have an eternal perspective. He doesn't want the Corinthians to make a big deal out of small things. So we should ask ourselves, am I engrossed in non-eternal things? Am I investing my time, my energy, my resources in things that won't matter in eternity? Do I see the things of Christ as big or do I see material things as big? Lord, help us to see big things as big and small things as small. The first reminder is this. Remember your destiny with Christ because our future changes the way we see the present. The second reminder is found in verses 5 through 8. Paul says, Say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Here, Paul continues to call the church back to reality. 
back to who they truly are as believers. The reminder found in these verses is this. Remember your witness of Christ. In verses 5 through 6, Paul is saying to the church, you should be able to resolve disputes between believers yourselves, but instead, brothers and sisters in Christ are seen battling one another before unbelievers. He is calling them to stop and consider how this will impact their witness before a watching world. Now let's be clear. This doesn't mean that they're supposed to be fake or dishonest. It's not that we're supposed to hide our problems from the world and sweep them under the rug, kind of like if you had a house you were trying to sell, but it had like a leak in the roof and a hole in the floor and and mold in the walls and you just covered it up and presented it to the world and you see, it's a great house. No, Paul is not saying cover the problems, not hide the problems, but deal with the problems. Because if you choose not to deal with the problems and combat one another out there, the reality is you will only be combating your witness what will suffer. Paul develops this further in verses 7 through 8. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And that's a softer way of translating it. The sense is, to have a lawsuit in the first place is an utter defeat for you. Regardless of who wins in court, in the bigger picture, it is a loss. In God's eye view, it is a great loss because it's a loss to your witness. Let me just say parenthetically, you can win a fight, but it can still be a loss in God's eyes. Sometimes winning is losing. That's what God is saying here. For them, it's a great loss because it's a loss to their precious witness. In the grand scheme of things, what's more important? Paul wrote this. Paul wrote this letter in the first century, probably in the in the fifties A.D. These guys were probably fighting over material goods. Two thousand years later, where we stand now, what has happened to those material goods? They're dust compared to our calling from God as witnesses. What's more important? That's Paul's point with these next two questions. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? Have you ever been holding on to something extremely precious, but then all of a sudden you trip and fall and start going down? It's terrifying, isn't it? But what do you do? You clutch onto that thing and you just go down. No matter what injury, you will suffer. Likewise, we've been entrusted with something extremely precious. Our witness of Jesus Christ to the world. If it came down to it, wouldn't it be better to hold on to that even if it means suffering some sort of material injury, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? 
hold on to your witness at all costs. Preserve your witness at all costs. If you're going to drop something, don't drop that. But how do we do that? How do we preserve our witness? In this passage, it, it actually includes looking at the negative example of the Corinthians and doing the opposite with two overlapping actions. The first, by shining. We preserve our witness by shining. You and I could not see the stars in the sky if they were dark gray. And at night, you could not see Iowa from an airplane, but you could see Chicago. Why? Because skyscrapers are much bigger and much brighter than barns. The contrast between the night sky and the shining lights is what you see. We preserve our witness by not blending in with the world and looking exactly like the world, but by living differently, by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, living like Jesus. Think about it this way. Would you buy something if the before and after photos they had looked exactly the same? Like say you're checking out a house cleaning company and they give you this before picture and it's this filthy room full of garbage. Then you look at the after picture and it's the exact same photo. Nothing's changed. Likewise, people today will have no interest in Christianity if our before and after looks exactly the same. Nothing's changed. And I'm not talking about external appearance, like putting on a a pair of khakis and a nice Christian cardigan. I'm talking about radical inward change that shows up in our lives. When our hearts are different and the overflow fills our lives, we preserve our witness by shining. And number two is related. By loving, we preserve our witness by loving one another. Our, our love for one another is a reflection of what God is like to the watching world. And I know we have God's love because I know that the Spirit of Christ dwells in every believer. And so if we show God's love, if we let that flow out of us, love that always seeks each other's best interests, no matter how we are treated and no matter what the cost, then the world will take notice. An author named Tertullian which, uh, if you're going to have a a boy child, might be a good option for you, who lived in the second century, wrote that people from the outside would say of Christians, see how they love one another. The world took notice. We preserve our witness by loving. The second reminder in our passage is this. Remember your witness of The third reminder is found in verses 9 through 11. We read. There's a water kind of shouting. It's just exciting. Do you not know, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such for some of you, but you are washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here, Paul is issuing his final call in this passage for the church to embrace who they truly are as believers. The reminder in these verses is this. Remember your transformation in Christ. It actually begins with a strong word of warning. Verse 9 says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And at first this might seem disconnected. Like, like where did that come from? We were just talking about lawsuits. But actually it's tied to everything Paul has been saying. The word unrighteous literally means wrongdoing, and Paul has already used it twice in this passage. First, to describe the unbelieving world, and second, to describe those who do wrong by taking one another to court. So, it, thus Paul is saying to the Corinthians, in your wrongdoing, you are living just like the world. So he warns them, if you persist in this wrongdoing and repeatedly refuse to change your ways, if you keep living just like the world, you will show that you never belong to God in the first place and therefore have no part in His kingdom. Does that mean that we can lose our salvation? No. But it does mean that our actions, our persistent pattern of life, our life habits can be evidence that we never truly bowed our hearts to Jesus as Savior and King. This verse is not meant to be hurtful, but helpful, eternally helpful. If we are deceived about our standing with God, if we've always been going through the motions, Christians by name only, the best we can hear is not peace, peace, but a loving heart check so that we can embrace God's life-changing grace. Listen, if you're struggling with sin right now, but continually coming to the Lord and asking Him to give you His power to overcome and inviting fellow believers into the process, this is not a word for you. But if we think like the world, talk like the world, act like the world with no heart of repentance, no coming before God and saying, transform me. And the best thing we can do is ask ourselves, am I of the world? Have I just been playing a game? It's an eternally helpful question. Because God never turns away anyone who comes to Him acknowledging their desperate need for His grace. grace that we find in Jesus Christ. He will never turn those who come to Him, confessing their sin, calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I of the world? Next, Paul expands the warning to a list of specific sins that fall under the category of unrighteous. It's interesting that scholars say that most, if not all, of the list were socially acceptable to the Romans at that time. They would have put their stamp of approval on these behaviors. It's like Paul is saying, 
I don't want you to be misinformed. Those who practice these things are of the unbelieving world and are also not right with God. Just like the wrongdoing of taking one another to court, these are specific instances of wrongdoing that may or may not be right in society's eyes, but ultimately God does not approve of. And you'll notice that most of the list is also relevant to our day and age, including the the practice of homosexuality, which our society has formally stood behind in the recent Supreme Court ruling. So I think we should touch on that for a moment. Again, this isn't central to the passage, so I don't want to delve into too much detail here, but it's there in the text, so I don't want to duck. We, we, we go through Scripture. We don't go around it. So how does Scripture form our stance on the issue of same-sex behavior? 1 Corinthians 6.11 is one of six key passages in Scripture that speak of homosexuality, both from the Old and the New Testament. And in all of them, the clear teaching is that this is not behavior that God approves of. In other words, it is sin. And people have tried to write these verses off or explain them away, but you really have to twist the meaning of the words in order to do so. And we can't approach the Bible by forcing it to say what we want it to say. We can't force the Bible to justify our opinions or actions. We approach it with meekness. And anything in our lives that doesn't match up, we seek to bring into agreement with what he says to be true. You see, we can't rely on culture to tell us what is best at any given time. Look how much that has fluctuated even in the history of our own country. It was not too long ago that culture said that slavery is okay. It was not too long ago that culture said that women shouldn't vote. We can't rely on culture to tell us what is best. We believe that God is the good creator. And so ultimately, He is the authority. And He knows what is best. So then what should our response be to advocates of same-sex behavior? I would like to suggest two things. Faithfulness and humility. Part of what it means to be faithful is to hold on to what God says to be true. We keep holding on regardless of whether people think more or less of us. Being faithful means that God's opinion of us matters more than others' opinion of us. And faithfulness also means that we are faithful to our calling. We are not called to recede into this little Christian island, giving up on society. We can't withdraw from the world. Isn't isn't that the attitude that that sometimes we're hearing now as Christians, but we can't withdraw from the world. We must be in it as salt and light. We must engage, not with yelling, not with picket signs, not with slogans, but with loving, honest conversation. Faithfulness to God says to be true. Faithfulness to to what God says to be true and faithfulness to our calling. 
but also humility. In humility, we realize that we are just as in need of grace as anyone else. We, are, we all share in the fallen human condition and we are equally in need of redemption in Christ. We all come to Christ completely spiritually bankrupt. We all come to Christ with a zero in the account. There's no special class of people. And in humility, we have to acknowledge that practicing homosexuality is not the only thing on this list. And that's not meant to minimize one sin over the other, no, but to treat them all seriously, even and especially the ones that apply to our own hearts. Jesus Christ never wavered from the truth, and at the same time, He was approachable to all. An author, as author Christopher Yuan put it, Jesus, who personifies love, came full of grace and full of truth. Might that be how we live as well? Full of grace and full of truth. This passage does not end at verse 10. It it does not end with a warning. It ends with the solution. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is saying, you are living like the world and you need to turn from your ways. But he doesn't stop there. He continues, and I know that you will because that's not you anymore. Not that I'm confident in you, but I'm confident in Christ in you. That's the solution that flows from the heart of the gospel. It's not simply change. It's live out the change that God has made in your hearts. Notice that verse 11 does not say, wash yourselves, sanctify yourselves, justify yourselves. It says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Someone else did it for us. When you placed your faith in Christ, that is what God did in you, did for you. That's who you are now. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can walk in that, live in that, be that. One commentator stated, God is not in the business of whitewashing sins, but of transforming sinners. Walk in that transformation. It's already been done for us. Throughout this passage, Paul's message has been this. That's not you anymore. But I I almost hesitate to word it that way. Because I don't want to give us the sense, that's not you anymore. We're better. It's all of grace. It's because of what God has done for us in Christ and in us through the Spirit. You are no longer of the world. By grace, that's not you anymore. We are called to make a clean break, to live differently and given the power to do it. Remember your transformation in Christ. So I'd like to close with a few questions for honest reflection. And let me just say that I regularly sit where where you're sitting 
And I know that when a preacher says he's wrapping up, the temptation is to start packing everything up, like your phone and your pen and your Bible. I just want to ask you to let's just hold off on that for a moment. I want to invite you to bow your heads and consider these questions. Am I cultivating an eternal perspective? Seeing big things as big and small things as small. How am I preserving my witness of Jesus Christ? Am I shining and loving? I'm asking. Am I caught up with the things of this world? And by the grace of God, 